VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, Cristiano Ronaldo becomes the first player to score five World Cups as Portugal beat Ghana and Richarlison scores a worldie to prove his worth for Brazil in their opening victory. All that and more on The Game. World Cup 2022. Hello and welcome back to the Game Podcast. I am Hugh Woodencroft out in Qatar, of course, another busy day at the World Cup. And I'm joined uh, to review it all by Paul Hurst, Tom Alder and Gregor Robertson. Uh, listen, we're going to start with the game between Portugal and Ghana. It finished 3-2 to the Portuguese. Cristiano Ronaldo becoming the first man to score at five World Cups at the age of 37 years old. Hursty, you were at the game. Um, and listen, Cristiano Ronaldo has been in the headlines for all the wrong reasons so far since the World Cup began. Can we at least say this is a positive day for him? Yeah, it was a, it's a positive day in that it was a, a historic achievement. He, he became the, fi- the first man to score in five World Cups. It's never been done before. So that's, uh, that's a reason for him to be proud. And to be honest, his performance wasn't great. He um, the, the penalty that he won was was pretty dubious, really. It looked like Solis who got the ball before Ronaldo um, hit the deck. So I just thought that was a bit uh, a bit cheeky of him to to go down like that to win the penalty. But he he scored it, and then he, you know celebrated in front of the fans, and everyone everyone loves Ronaldo again. <laughs> it's uh, you know it's, it's amazing just to see how all the Portuguese fans. Um, adore him uh, and lots of neutrals there as well just uh, uh, with his shirt and his number on the back and just um, he's he's loved um, pretty much all across the world When it comes to the game itself did Portugal deserve the victory? It was back and forth at times there was a little bit of drama thankfully there were goals as well I know you mentioned the penalty I don't think it was I think it was incredibly soft I tend to agree with you I think Ronaldo went down incredibly easily and maybe on that alone a little bit like Addo the Ghanaian coach um, very very disappointed with it he said maybe it's because it was Ronaldo he got that decision because it was a gift. He called it a special gift from the referee. Um, maybe that will sway the thoughts as to whether Portugal actually deserved this victory. It was a really disjointed performance from Portugal. I, I couldn't really work out what the formation was at the start. I wondered whether it was 4-3-3, um, 4-4-2. But at the end, I settled on 4-1-4-1 with Neves sitting in front of the defence. Um, but even in, in that formation, he had... Shao Felix on the left wing and then Bernardo on the right wing. And it was just a strange um, way to line up the midfield um, with um, with Bernardo and Otavio in the middle, just behind Ronaldo. I just didn't think it played to 
Portugal's strengths, really. I would have had Bernardo and Bruno Fernandes um, sitting in the middle just behind Ronaldo. Um, but I think Ronaldo was also um, part of the problem a little bit because he just kept dropping deep into the um, into the midfield, trying to be like a, a number 10 like Harry Kane. And when you've got such a, a talented attacking midfield as Portugal have, you, you don't need to be dropping into those pockets. You should be waiting on the last man, trying to break through and wait for those through balls. Um, but Ronaldo just wasn't doing that too often. Maybe he just doesn't think he's got the legs to, to beat the offside trap anymore. So it was all a little bit disjointed. Uh, João Cancelo didn't play that well. Neither did Ruben Diaz until right at the end of the match. So, you know, it was, it was a probably five and a half, six out of ten performance from Portugal. But but they got the win. And, you know, we've seen other other big teams lose their first match. So, so they'll be happy that they've to get off to a winning start. Paul, I know you haven't got long with us and I know it's slightly off topic from uh, from the World Cup, but you, of course, have been working as our Manchester correspondent on the news that the Glazers are prepared to sell the club. What's the latest on that? I saw reports that Apple, the technology company, if you like, wanted to get involved. Are those true at all? And, and where do you see this sale going? Well, I've, it's. I think what we're seeing now, basically, is... Um, every very wealthy billionaire, multi-billionaire throw their hat into the ring or at least let it be known that they would be willing to throw their hat in the ring or be connected to the to the takeover. And so I think we've, we've got to, I'd say, give it a couple of weeks at least to find out who, you know, to, to sort the wheat from the chaff really because it's happened with Chelsea, didn't it? You've you got so many people that like to be associated with take over a bit like that, like to like to make it be known that they've got so much money and so much power, etc. That I think that the, there are a few few duffs out there. Um but I think what the what the what the Glazers are wanting at the moment is just for uh, just for as many serious bidders to come come forward as possible. Because obviously that drives up the asking price. So I think we'll see over the next few weeks who the serious bidders are. You know, Apple have been linked with with United and there's obviously been rumors about whether sound Saudi um, Arabia will be willing to get involved in it as well. I think their public investment fund are more more geared towards Newcastle at the moment. So, yeah, I think we'll see you know any number of, of bidders coming through in the, in the next couple of weeks. Okay, Paul Hurst, thank you very much for joining us on the game with a little bit of news of Manchester United, but of course reacting to Portugal's three two win over Ghana. So, Tom, what did you make of Portugal's performance uh, in the end? There, Cristiano Ronaldo got the goal. Um, but as Hursty said, they were a little bit tough to figure out. I was hoping that they were going to be one of the nations that maybe sent a message. Um, and the only message we really got is that I think there'll be a goal threat, but there are weaknesses. Yeah, I mean, I thought this was a, a, quite a funny game, really. It, you know, sort of swung back and forth for a while. Portugal looked quite threatening kind of in the, in the latter stages. But for, for the majority of the match, it felt like, I don't know, I, I think the main message they sort of sent was they still haven't really figured out the best way to play, the best way to fit in their various attacking talents and, and really the best way to kind of fit Ronaldo in, I guess, still. I mean, it just kind of felt like for, for a long time they were a bit stodgy, that they didn't really know how to break down to the Ghana team. And I, I sort of felt, to be honest, that Ronaldo, you know, although he scored the goal, I mean, you know, obviously he got that fantastic, astonishing uh, record. You know, he, he missed three or four really good chances in this game, you know, chances we really would have expected him to to put in, you know, I mean, there was the one that was disallowed, maybe he was a little bit unlucky, um, but there was the header at the back post that he really should have scored and, and a couple of others as well. So, you know, I don't think he was particularly impressive. 
Um, and I think, you know, it's it's a shame in a way they've got a couple of players in that team who are sort of younger, a bit quicker, people like Felix, who's such a talent, you know, and obviously Liao as well, who came on, and I thought actually looked really bright in the last sort of, 10, 15 minutes that they can't find a way to make those players the kind of focal point of this team. It feels like so much is... It's based around Ronaldo and and that doesn't necessarily feel like it's uh, getting the best out of, of all their attacking talents, which which sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Did Portugal impress you, Gregor? It's kind of a reminder that they've got one of the best squads in the, in the tournament, I think. But they're still kind of struggling to to get the best from them or to, to be playing in a, in a system that's going to get the best from them, as, as Tom's alluding to there. But also, I was just kind of quite surprised by how shaky they looked in, in kind of key moments defensively as well I'd say they've, they've got some of the best defenders in the tournament as well so, and there were some real kind of harem scaring moments so I wouldn't say I was impressed but I would as I would say about quite a number of teams in the tournament so far I feel like there probably is more to come from them although I agree that it's not that Ronaldo seems to be the kind of focal point without really anyone knowing how to play around them I still think there is that could improve and I thought Leal when he came on was a big improvement to use really languid kind of dynamic attacking player and I think we'll, I think he's going to be a big player for them and I think I also think although he got, got a cameo at the end Polina as well as is is someone who that he can play his way into the team in the Euros and I think it's possible to see that again because I think really if you look at Portugal's midfield you have three real kind of footballers and Polina's the destroyer and he might allow, allow give them a little bit more license to two of them a little bit more license to move forward I agree with you on that I was like uh, we need a tactical yellow here guys can we just stop these sort of end-to-end approaches where is Paulinho when you need someone to, to leave the game with five or six fouls to just one player that's what we needed and when he did come on maybe that helped a little bit I've got to say there were some funny moments in this game as well before I get to them on the penalty absolutely no way Gregor no I feel like we've had this conversation a million times on this podcast where I will say the defender was a little bit dunderheaded to be honest just making the making the action towards him I didn't have to do it uh, you know sticking his foot towards him and even if it was it didn't go across me even if it didn't make any significant significant contact it gave him the opportunity I mean you give someone the opportunity who's as crafty as Ronaldo he's going to take it and he gave the referee a decision to make. But look, I, I know what you're going to say. It doesn't matter. It wasn't a penalty and you're right. It, it, it wasn't a penalty. I've got to say, I've got to, I'm trying to be as quiet as possible, by the way, if you haven't noticed on this podcast, because um, the neighbours complained about me after last night, right? Being too, <laughs> being too loud. Uh, and we're recording this in my hotel room. And obviously we are three hours ahead. We've done it straight after the end of the Brazil-Serbia game. And so I'm trying to be, you know, as as polite as possible to those around me. But honestly, conspiracy theory Hugh is back because... Oh, no. uh, No, mate. We are not getting enough camera angles at this tournament. I am honestly, all of the big decisions, we are not getting the right camera angles. I did the game today between Uruguay and South Korea. There was a bit of a push by Benton Kerr. We got a couple of quick replays from a similar angle. I did the game between Germany and Japan for the German penalty. It was the same. We never really got the the full 360 number of replays that we could have. We obviously assume these are checked and that at least the VAR had all of the angles uh, at their disposal. But the fact that we aren't seeing them is suspicious. That is all I'm going to say, okay? And again, for the Ronaldo one, there were a couple, there were a couple of very quick replays and it was all, yeah, it's a penalty and uh, obviously the referee hasn't done anything wrong and I don't know if it's a directive to support the on-field decision. Sometimes we criticise the fact that these decisions are over a little bit too much. 
I am here saying at this World Cup, these decisions are not being poured over enough. And that needs to change. Okay, that's all I'm going to say about it. And I've said it in a very polite and quiet voice. So there you go. Um, But I will keep that theme going if this continues. I'll be speaking directly to the officials, frankly. But also I mentioned those funny moments. And the funniest moment of the game was Bakari scoring the second goal for Ghana. Come on, Tom, live this with me. He's brought it back in the 89th minute to 3-2. So obviously, no, not don't bundle the goalkeeper out of the way, grab the ball out the back of the net and run straight back to the halfway line. No, no, no. Run to the corner and do Cristiano Ronaldo's celebration despite the fact you're trailing by a goal. I thought that was absolutely ridiculous, but equally hysterical. Even funnier than, than Inaki Williams afterwards. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> Slipping slipping when he had the oh. opportunity to, to get oh. the equaliser it was a, it was an entertaining end to the game I'll give you that absolutely well, I think it's confidence you know I mean you know there's, there's now 10 minutes of that added time so if you sort of pull a goal back in the sort of 86th minute or something you know you're, you're no longer getting the ball out of the net to sprint back to the centre circle you know you've still got sort of 14-15 minutes still to play you know it's a, it's a different game these days um, and, and I think the Inaki Williams one blimey that was so disappointing like I thought he'd done it so brilliantly he'd sort of just hidden away perfectly without the goalkeeper seeing him. He just sort of bided his time, you know, and then made the run exactly perfectly, nicked it off him, and then and then just couldn't quite execute the sort of the easiest part of the whole thing, which is to sort of get the ball, make the turn and, and slot it in. It was, uh, who was it who did that in the print? Was it, it was, um, Robbie Keane, wasn't it, who did it? It was a long time ago for, for Spurs and, and pulled that off. Although also Ronaldo and, and um, I think it was Silva's face on the bench was a picture oh, of comedy inject as well actually it. inject <laughs> it into my head. veins like, they oh. cut to Ronaldo's face <laughs> at the perfect moment he was furious I loved it classic World Cup moment uh, Ronaldo's celebration shoved in his face unfortunately Portugal still won the game so he must have been smiling at the end I've got to say this is the first Dean Saunders story of the podcast but of course we are covering Wales we'll be doing the Iran match tomorrow we were sitting watching this game together and when Rafael Liao scored that goal I got a good 15 minute conversation out of him as to how difficult that finish is. He said, you know, as a striker, ah, oh, so many of those, I've put too much on it straight at the goalkeeper um, or maybe curled it round the far post, hit it off for a throw. I got the full conversation about the technique and he goes, you know what? People won't appreciate what a good finish that is. So this is for you, Dean. What a goal from Rafael Liao. Gregor, you agree with that, surely? I have to say is. I do, and I also I really enjoyed. I know you've you've uh, slagged off the camera angles already, but I really enjoyed one angle from behind the goal where he was smiling, almost kind of breaking into laughter before the ball, like before he'd even contacted the ball. Like he was so confident it was going to be swept into the into the net, he was just had this broad grin on his face. So he he was he was a joy when he came on. He was really entertaining to watch, and I hope we see more of him. Absolutely, he was really good. But it was interesting that um, you know in that last, last 10, 15 minutes that, that Fernandez really had a go at him a couple of times. I don't know if you saw that when sort of Portugal were hanging on, he kind of went for, a, I think, a long shot and almost kind of set up a Ghana counter-attack. And there was another one where he maybe could have gone into the corner and kept the ball and he sort of tried to dribble inside. I don't know. I mean, he was, he was brilliant, but I wonder if there's a sort of feeling in the Portugal team that maybe he's just not quite, uh, I don't know, tactically sort of experienced enough or if he's a little bit of a liability defensively you know but I thought he was thought he was a real uh, a real joy to watch in that last 10 minutes I don't know if you guys caught this on British TV I was watching this game on local television here I'm actually currently watching Otto Addo the, uh, the, the Ghana coach absolutely furious um, I can just see his gesticulations 
I'm sure he's talking about the penalty decision. But he took off kind of Ghana's best two players when the game had just been brought back to one all. Um, Andre Ayew was one of the players. And I don't know if you got this camera shot, but he was being congratulated by all of his teammates as he's just come off the pitch, high fives all round, back in the game. And he's not even looking as Portugal score their second to go ahead. And the mood is just completely killed on the bench. And I've got a few mates that support Ghana who are just like, it's the first game. Why are you taking off players? Because they're on yellow cards. Like they were furious about that. So I thought I had to mention it. Uh, it was another funny moment. The only other question I have on this is, do we, did we see a team that can be serious, Gregor, in terms of this World Cup? Well, look, I, like I say, I just, uh, it, it just smacks me around the face how, how many really, really talented footballers they have in their team. I don't think we can write them off. I do feel that they can be more solid defensively than that too. It's been really hard to call it so far in the tournament. I mean, looking at thinking about who's been the best out of the, you know, the first round of games, and we're going to come on to speak about Brazil, but I think Brazil and France for me so far, and England are out in front. So I think they're they look a little bit a little bit behind them so far anyway. Well, that was an opening victory uh, for Portugal. Um, they managed to get past Ghana in a, in a pretty eventful match. I'm not taking too much out of it. Interesting to see how they get on against the other two teams in Group G, Uruguay and South Korea. Um, look, it was an interesting one, wasn't it? Um not a classic, absolutely not a classic. I had to watch every moment of this game. 90, it's about 97 minutes that I'm not going to get back, to be perfectly honest, out of my life. But what I would say is they kind of epitomized two teams that were undercooked. I mean, they just, it's almost like neither side was ready for it. Um, it was kind of described to me as being a testimonial pace of match. There was no real tempo, no real intensity here in this game. We saw... The likes of Luis Suarez, Edison Cavani came off the bench, Martin Caceres. Um, they all played at their fourth World Cup, which was obviously fantastic for them. As Also, Diego Godin, the great central defender, did as well. South Korea had Hyung Min Son in their starting lineup wearing a, a face mask uh, after that fractured eye socket. He never really got into the game. Quality player, of course. Um, I don't think anyone really got in the game, to be perfectly honest. This match was notable, I think, for me, basically leaving it thinking, Luis Suarez, this is it. This World Cup is it. He will be a retired as a footballer as far as I'm concerned after this um, because he played like a ringer almost, like he'd come out of retirement to play at this World Cup. Like he just was not up to pace, not at the speed, no movement in the forward area. He was replaced by Edinson Cavani, who is not exactly a spring chicken himself, if you like, but he just showed so much more speed and agility in that forward area. I can't see how Luis Suarez starts the following matches if Uruguay are really serious about getting a victory because he was totally absent in this game. And I'm really disappointed with the Uruguayan midfield. Yeah, there were a couple of times that they hit the frame of the goal. Valverde from distance, Godin had a header as well. Rodrigo Bentancur um, and Federico Valverde were really disappointing in this game. Never really got uh, onto the ball, never really tried to dictate the game in central midfield. And it just, it just wasn't really a game that you could credit Uruguay at all really and I think it, it felt like if that game had taken place 10 days from now with maybe another game in between Uruguay would have won comfortably but another example of a team that just is a little bit underprepared for this World Cup physically I think and it was the same 
uh, for South Korea as well, who were just so tentative around the box. There was never really a run in behind. They had an absolutely fantastic chance to score. And had they taken it, maybe it would be a different game. In the end, it was one of the worst games, probably the worst game of the World Cup so far. I've managed to say a lot after saying it was nothing to write home about. I probably could have fit that all in an envelope. But yeah, nothing really for us to, to truly discuss, uh, unless you feel differently, Gregor. The only thing I, I came away from watching this game thinking is that Uruguay, Uruguay will be hard to break down. They'll be very hard to score against. Caceres, the right, the right back, was like a Rottweiler. Stamped on Son at one point, <laughs> kind of from behind. Godin, we know all about. Yes, these guys are like 35 and 36 years old, but they've got Naus and alongside them, you know, Oliveira and Jimenez from Napoli and Atletico. And the kind of, I know you said the mid, you weren't impressed in midfield, but Bentancur and Valverde, they're kind of all action. I thought Valverde was okay, actually. I just feel like they're going to be hard to beat, no matter who you're playing against. So that's that was the my main takeaway. Yes, it was, there was this was two kind of conservative teams. Yes, Luis Suarez his light is fading. Again, James Gearbrand's match report he said he mustered seven passes, one of which was the kickoff, eighteen touches, and not a single shot. So you know, and that's in sixty four minutes. So it's like, yeah, he's he seems to be fading. You, who knows? He could surprise us. But Cavani was much livelier when he came on. But ultimately, these were two teams who were happy to be obdurate and didn't really commit many players forward. It was always going to be a moment of magic or Uruguay a long ball over the top for Nunes, uh, Darwin Nunes to run on to. Nothing really much more than that. So apart from that, for me, I th- it's just that it's going to take, take quite a lot to break down Uruguay. I think with Suarez, you have to you have to really commit to, to playing with him in the team. I remember when he joined Atletico Madrid, Diego Simeone said that he basically changed, had to change the way Atletico played to kind of suit Suarez. You basically have to get get him in the box and try and get the whole team higher up to get him as many touches in the box as possible. That's the way he plays. He's brilliant in and around the box. But if you don't get him any touches close to the goal, then effectively he becomes, you know, a dead weight in the team, you know. And I think you watch the way Uruguay played today. It was like, yeah, he got Suarez up front, hoping he might be the Suarez of 10 years ago, but, he, but he's not. You know, the distances were so big around him. He was so isolated. And that's why you ended up with, you know, zero shots, zero key passes. Like you said, Gregor, what, 14, 18 touches or something, you know. I mean, and in the end, you know, it just didn't work at all. So I saw an interesting stat as well. It was uh, the first time ever, apparently, that a team has fielded um, four 35-year-olds or older in, in the same starting lineup. So that's, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's, an, it's an aging, experienced, uh, chiseled Uruguay team, that's for sure. Well, the final group uh, to get underway at the World Cup saw Brazil and Serbia go head-to-head and also Switzerland against Cameroon. I might as well mention the game between Switzerland and Cameroon. Really important three points for the Swiss, but it was pretty notable for Rigobert Song, the Cameroon boss's admission after the game that he was actually proud of the goal scorer, Braille Mbolo, who consigned his team to a 1-0 defeat because Mbolo, of course, was born in the capital of Cameroon. He changed his citizenship after moving there at the age of six years old. And I don't know if we've ever seen this. You know, a lot of people often talk about not celebrating against a team in club football that maybe you used to play for, for example. But I cannot remember a situation where a player didn't celebrate in international football or didn't want to celebrate because of their allegiance to the other nation. And I won't go into the fact that I think players should be allowed to play for more than one nation. And I think this underlines it. But there you go. Um, 
But yeah, it was very, very notable for that. I don't think it was a particularly great game. Yeah, it was a pretty good, um, I guess, passing move for Switzerland to create the goal. But Mbolo was given the freedom of the basically the six-yard box to finish it off. And I think it was a defensive uh, error, at least a lax uh, bit of concentration from them that, that led to the goal. And otherwise, it would have been very tight. So as I say, very important win. Uh, for Switzerland in that game. But I think we do need to focus on the Brazilians, the pre-World Cup favourites, beating Serbia by two goals to nil, a scrappy goal for Richarlison and a beautiful bicycle kick for the Spurs man as well. Um, And it was tight. It was tight. The first goal came just after the hour mark. But in the end, actually, the stats suggest it was a very, very comfortable victory for Brazil and it sent out a little bit of a marker because Serbia are no fools either. It was an enjoyable game. It was weird out here in Doha because you had the sense that Brazil is a team that certainly the locals will be supporting fervently throughout the competition. Gregor, I'll start with you. What did you make of the game? I thought it was a fascinating game, actually. I think uh, maybe it's just because it's just happened, but I think maybe it's one of the it's the most impressive one of the tournament because I agree with you. I think Serbia are really good. I think they're a good side. I think they're really solid defensively. Milinkovic, Veljkovic, and Pavlovic are really powerful, disciplined. They were pushed to the limit sometimes when you know Vinicius Junior was running at them. I thought they stuck to stuck to the task, you know, manfully for a long time. But Brazil, Brazil just kind of wore them down. They just they stayed calm. There were there were some sloppy sloppy moments from them as well, but they just kept playing their football, and they started to build momentum. You could sense the momentum build them just before Richarlison scored his first goal. And even the goals, you've got to say, there were kind of moments from from very little. It was like a you know two moments of brilliance really. So in that you know in that regard, when you're kind of weighing up the opposition as well, I think it's probably one of the most probably the most impressive win and performance we've seen in the tournament because I, I think. The Serbia side are, are really, really good. You know, Tadic, Milinkovic, Savic, they're no mugs. They're, they've got some some talent as well. They were able to keep the ball for some some spells, but I think Brazil in the end, their quality and just the kind of also, you, you look at the quality they have on the bench, Anthony, Martinelli, Jesus, Rodrigo all coming on. Like they've got some arsenal in reserve and they just wore them down. They just wore them down and they were patient. So I, I, I thought it was really impressive. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... One of the biggest takeaways of this game is that Richarlison can deliver in a in a World Cup. I mean, you know, it's amazing to think that a few months ago Brazil were basically not going to play with a number nine. They were going to play with three players up there, not Richarlison. And then you know he plays a, a couple of friendlies and and gets on a good scoring run. And now he's basically undroppable. I mean, what is it now? Nine goals in in seven games. I thought the first goal was a was a was a good reaction, smart finish. But obviously that second one was just. Uh, you know, something else to control it with his left, I think, and then to volley it in with his right, or was it the other way around? I can't remember. Whoa, was, whoa, 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 just brilliant whoa, agility. whoa, Tom. Did you say he controlled it with his left? I mean, the ball went eight foot in the air, mate. He had to, his second touch was a bicycle kick. I mean, I, listen, it was a beautiful goal, awful touch, awful first touch anyway. I mean, it was fired in on the volley too. It wasn't an easy one to control. Any, any, uh... It was a beautiful finish and an awful first touch. <laughs> I think he delivered it up into the air, just into that little gap, you know, around the defenders. But uh, no, a fantastic finish. And, and I mean, it's it's interesting because I mean, I was actually in the in the mix zone at Tottenham about must have been about a month ago now when Richarlison came off and and thought he was basically his World Cup was done. He was you know completely crying in tears, saying that he 
was sure there was the same injury he suffered. I think a year ago he had a bad calf injury and he was basically pretty certain that he wasn't even going to be here. So for him to be fit, playing well, uh, to score a you know, a couple of goals like that were I an mean, absolute dream start for him. And I mean, you know, it was interesting on, on TV, they were kind of talking about how he hasn't really scored at all for Spurs this season. But I think, you know, it's a different scenario. I mean, when he's played for Tottenham, he's definitely been played a little bit more off the off the right. He has obviously hasn't been playing so regularly. He was just kind of finding some momentum and then and then got injured. Whereas in this Brazil team, obviously, he's the kind of the focal point, you know, and they've got all these other um, magicians kind of floating around him, but he gives them that kind of, uh, central focus um, up front that they need and and uh, you know sometimes you come into a tournament you have a player like that who just happens to be in form in the right moment the right time and it can be a it can be a real game changer listen I thought it was a pretty ominous sign from Brazil in terms of their performance because they just kind of turned the screw throughout the game like they just grew and grew and grew until they got the goal and then they got the second and it was all quite no frills. Um, Vinicius Jr., I mean, infuriating at times, brilliant at others. Um, I think he'll just wind away on that that left-hand side. And Neymar was an interesting one in terms of the midfield because he basically played as a number 10. I've just seen images of him limping down the tunnel as well um, on his right ankle. Didn't really look particularly smart. But again, I think the bench, when you cast your eyes over it, a bit like Brazil, excuse me, a bit like Portugal that we discussed a little bit earlier on. There's lots of quality there. Of course, you want Neymar in your side and it was meant to be his World Cup, his World Cup of redemption, you know, carrying the team to victory. What did you make of his new position and his performance, Gregor? He was dropping, he was almost kind of dropping at the left wing along a lot a lot of the first half as well and just trying to pick up the ball and you wonder really what the, the kind of great the benefit in the, in the grand scheme of things is to his team there sometimes there's one moment where he tried to kind of just like nutmeg a player in the mid- in midfield and you know he does these little flourishes but he's got to be he's at his most effective when he's picking the ball up in little pockets of space kind of in between the lines in between the back four and, and the opposition's midfield and turning and getting at getting at players are looking for one-twos looking, for, looking to make something happen and he kind of did that he did that in the build-up to Richarlison's first goal, I think it was, he caught the, he got the ball on the half turn. He kind of carried the ball across the box, and you know, I think he was looking to line up a shot or to line up a cross, and it failed to finish his junior, who whose shot was was obviously parried out, and Richarlison was there to pounce on it. But that that's where he's most effective. So you know, I, yeah, it's great to see sometimes these little flourishes, but I don't really see what how effective they are for Brazil when he drops that deep. Sometimes he does it and he gets he picks the ball up and he runs at players and he skips beyond players and you think, yeah, but they're quite rare. It's I'd like to see him try and occupy spaces higher up the pitch rather than kind of drifting out to left back <laughs> just because he's getting bored. That's what it seems to me. I don't think it was his best game. I think he had he had moments, he had little flashes of, you could, we, see, we see what he, he's capable of. I think the best opening actually was for Rafinha in the first half, the best piece of football. Um, I think it was with Paquita, the kind of a little first time pass into into Rafinha, and, and he he just didn't quite get enough on his shot. He basically passed it straight back to the goalkeeper. <laughs> that was the best sequence of play, really. But as you say, I think the most impressive thing in this game was just the way that Brazil grew and the momentum built, and you saw Serbia, despite how well they defended, just kind of start to wither a little bit, and they couldn't cope with it, and and the goals came. Yes, very, very good performance from Brazil to start the campaign off. You've got to call that a very, very solid victory. Intrigued to see if they continue with what was quite an attacking lineup. Pacatar 
basically playing alongside Casemiro deeper in midfield. You had Neymar roving, picking the ball up. And of course, the front three, very, very attacking looking team uh, from Chiche, the Brazil coach. And I wonder if that will continue throughout the competition. We shall see again. Fantastic players on the Brent bench, by the way. Even Manchester United's Fred came on. So there you go. Strength in depth. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Before we go, we've got to talk about the games tomorrow very, very quickly. Our predictions in terms of Group B with both England and Wales in action. England taking on the United States. Victory will see them go through. And of course, Wales have the chance to send Iran home with victory and give themselves a really good chance of qualifying for the knockout stages. I will be at that game. Uh, really looking forward to it. I'm going to have to wake up in about five hours, which um, I'm, I'm not prepared yet. So I'm going to go to bed in about three hours. But there you go. Yeah, I think Wales have to win. I'm concerned uh, about Gareth Bale and Aaron Ramsey already in terms of their physical output because they didn't move a lot in that opening game, the one-all draw with the United States. Great second half inspired by Kiefer Moore's introduction. He has to start against Iran, who of course were battered 6-2 by England. I know that they will want to bounce back very, very strongly. So it's going to be a big, big first half, a 1 p.m. kickoff in that game. It's going to be hot. And I think it's going to be a really intriguing contest, especially if Joe Allen starts. Because if Ramsey, Bale and Allen, who've been such heroes for this team over years, all start this game, I think physically you're taking you're taking a big edge off, off of the output of your team 10 15 20% in terms of what they can do by getting around the pitch remember Allen hasn't played since September the 17th so I, I at this point in time I can't even predict a Wales win I'm really nervous about it I can't predict a Wales win if those three start because I think the likes of Brendan Johnson who was great off the bench you've got Dan James who was substituted for Kiefer Moore um, people like Joe Morell who came on the Portsmouth player but he just puts himself around the pitch. They brought the energy, which actually, if you look at some of the underdog performances so far in the World Cup, have sort of typified that high work rate and high aggression. And I think Wales need to bring that. But I know, we all know Rob Page is going to rely on some of those players that he has done and have done so well for him over the past couple of years. So anyway, that's a very long prediction. I can't call it. Heart of Hearts says a one-all draw. What do you think, Gregor? Um, I think, look, we, we know that Kiefer Moore's going to start and I think that transforms it. And as I said, after that transforms the kind of game plan, I think what I said after the, the first game was that it's almost a benefit and that I think they, they need to almost buy. I, I agree with you. They don't have a satisfactory midfield, no matter what the the makeup is. Uh, I think they need to get the ball, quick, ball forward quickly to Kiefer Moore. And I think... They need to have a decent enough foundation to allow Ramsey to 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 go forward and get get play closer to to Kiefer Moore. They need one player with legs alongside Gareth Bale as well. I'm not sure Allen will start. I think it's a big ask. It's a long time out and you know relatively short space of uh, of time in training um, to come into as you say a 1 p.m. kickoff in a World Cup in Qatar after that that long out is is going to be a big ask. I think I agree with you. I think they need they need legs, and I would go with Morel, who I actually thought should play in the first game. 
because they don't I just think that there needs to be a kind of a foundation for for the for the best players to to go and do what they do best um I don't think they need they, they don't don't need to be playing through midfield like they tried to do against the US they need to get the ball forward quickly so if you're asking me for a prediction, I think it could be a draw as well. Okay, Tom, it's left to you to discuss England. They take on the United States. Uh, win puts them through and probably puts them through as uh, group winners as well. After scoring six in the first game, do you think Southgate will make any changes to his either formation or personnel? And do you think England have enough to beat the United States in this game? I think after that opening Iran game, obviously, you know, incredible start for England, but I think they were slightly um, disappointed to concede two goals. And we've heard quite a few times from the players and, and Southgate as well, they they realised they're going to need to tighten up if they're going to, when they play against better teams, you know, poss- potentially probably later on in the tournament. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised to see a slightly more kind of tighter, more uh, solid kind of England performance. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if it's a slightly lower scoring. Uh, I expect them to win, but I, I would think maybe sort of something like 2-0. I'm not sure if... Southgate will rotate the team very much. You know, I mean, I think when you've had such a resounding victory like that, I think you want to kind of keep the rhythm going. I guess the, the the big question mark is possibly about Kyle Walker because we know that Southgate favours that sort of three-man defence, particularly against better teams later in the tournament, and he won't be wanting to kind of throw Walker in against, let's say, France in a quarterfinal, you know, you know when he hasn't played uh, minutes and the team hasn't played with that three-man defence. So whether he you know, uses Walker in the next couple of games and tries to get that formation, that system kind of embedded um, remains to be seen. But I suspect he'll probably keep the same system, bring on Walker later in the game and uh, and try and get this group wrapped up. And then maybe in that last game against Wales, you know, he might sort of uh, rotate a little bit, uh, keep the squad fresh, um, which which could be to Wales' advantage. I mean, it's, in my opinion, the, the, the formation of this group is quite nicely set up for Wales. You know, they play Iran, um, on the back of, you know, a thumping, um, Iran are going to be, you know, their confidence is going to be fragile and they could potentially get an England team who may, you know, rotate in that last game. So um, if Wales can get a result tomorrow, then they might be well placed to, to sneak through. OK, I'm going to try my best to get to both of those games tomorrow, both Wales and England. And we will react, of course, we will to all the events at the World Cup in Qatar on our next episode of the game. My thanks to you for listening. Thank you, Gregor Robertson, Tom Allner and Paul Hurst for joining me on the podcast. Remember, download the Times app, you'll get loads of our great journalism from all of our journalists out here in Qatar. And you can also subscribe to the podcast. Make sure you hit that notification button. We'll have these episodes for you each and every morning, so make sure you don't miss one. We'll see you soon. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.